This is Jeff Kober, and we welcome you to a Disney Work and Play podcast. It is that time of year, Halloween, and we can't go through this season without talking about the beloved Haunted Mansion. So I headed out to the graveyard, tried to find anybody who would come from the dead, who would come forth and talk about the and, and share with me in the praises of the great Haunted Mansion. And lo and behold, I found Jason Sorrell, who had uh, appeared, uh, having gone through a, uh, a, a an experience in another life with uh, Universal Creative, has now um, uh, been freed and immortalized and made available to chat this afternoon about all things Haunted Mansion. Jason, we are grateful to have you on your on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's a, an absolute pleasure to be able to talk about uh, uh, all things Disney, specifically the Haunted Mansion again. And, you know, as you may have heard, there's been a medical emergency throughout most of the world for the past year. <laughs> it hasn't been covered in the mainstream media, but you may have heard of it. I, yes. And then that, yes. has, uh, unfortunately, that's had quite an impact on the themed entertainment industry. And uh, those of us impacted... Uh, jokingly nerding nerdily uh referred to it as the thanos snap <laughs> so unfortunately oh, so true. Uh, i got caught up in that but the good news is uh it's actually uh freed me up as as an independent experience designer now to um to do a lot more things which is uh which is where all good imagineers go at some point so <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so we are glad to have you of course we're going to include Jason's bio on uh, the notes page, which you're definitely going to want to check out. If you've been around Walt Disney World for the last 20 years, you've pretty well seen Jason's bio. <laughs> so <laughs> it appears in different parks. Um, we I got to talk about Legend of Captain Jack Sparrow at some point with <laughs> you. So don't know if we're going to get on that on this show. But Jason has also been um, an author and co-author on some really great, great books that I uh, enjoy, especially uh, The Haunted Mansion, which I have not one but two copies of because my um, young autistic son has torn off, torn up the uh, first uh, copy of my book because he, he loves all things Haunted Mansion. So I had to eventually, in order to get from one page to the next, buy another copy. So, <laughs> so, um, so we... I just, this is an opportunity to talk about Haunted Mansion. And let's start, if we can, with your first experience as a kid with the Haunted Mansion. It, it's funny because my first experience with the Haunted Mansion was a non experience in that uh, I was five years old in 1975. And now everyone's getting out their phones and doing the math. <laughs> 50, I'll make it easier for, for everyone. Uh, so I was five years old, I went down with my parents and, and my very young, barely a toddler sister at that time. And even at that young age, I was well aware of the Haunted Mansion. And it wasn't even so much that my parents didn't want me to go on it. I think I sort of self-selected uh, to opt out because I got scared. But to this day, I will never forget that sort of ominous quality of the legend of the Haunted Mansion in that you would hear it being spoken of all over the park. And as a five-year-old kid, you're, you're just picturing this spooky old house on a hill and people talking about it even then in such reverential tones. And I, I wound up saying, uh, I don't think I'm ready. Maybe the next trip. 
but the funny thing for me is uh, for most people you talk to, the, the major memory is their first experience. And for me, the major memory is not having that first experience because I chose not to. Uh, and of course, I wrote it the next trip, which was probably 76 or 77, because we were coming down from Cleveland every year. Uh, and I finally got to ride it. And then it was love at first sight. But much like a lot of Disney attractions and a lot of Disney animated films, it was just scary enough to create a sense of trepidation. Ironically, I think I was more terrified by Snow White's scary adventures and the appearances of, of the witch. Um, but Haunted Mansion was, e e even with that little wariness, was love at first sight. It, it, it has this ability to create a, an anticipation of, and fear in the hearts of people before they've ever gone on it. And then to see it all just kind of dissipate it and just end up being really kind of a funny, funny little journey. But my experience is almost identical to yours. Summer of 69, the year it opened at Disneyland. And my brothers all wanted to go on it. The wait time was three hours. And I remember sitting with my mother on the rivers of America waiting forever for them to get off of that and thinking, okay, I just, this is just too fearful. I can't, I can't handle this. And yet when I finally got on it, you know, I think it was 72. I was like, really? I was this worried about it. And by the way, one of my favorite, um, favorite pieces of memorabilia was the Haunted Mansion uh, LP album with artwork by, I want to say, was that Colin Campbell? I think it was Colin Campbell. I, yeah, it was. And um, great illustrations in that book. In fact, I think that's really how the Hatbox Ghost managed to live on past its very short tenure at, uh, at Disneyland because it it was, it was in the LP. It was on the record. It was in the album. You know, the picture was there. And so we kind of all fed off of that. And where is it? You know, so. Well, I, t I totally agree with you that, that that story and song from the Haunted Mansion definitely planted seeds as far as the Hatbox Ghost is concerned. But taking that even further, I've encountered over the years more people who tell me that in many ways that album was just as impactful just as influential in their passion for the mansion as the ride itself. Because I can remember listening to it, wearing it out over and over again. And Ron having, Howard as Ron the teenager. Ron Howard as, 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 the, as, as Mike, Mike and Karen, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Even as a little kid, I'm like, who goes oh, inside yeah. a house? You know, what are you, an idiot? Stand on the porch. You're I, why, I am why? just, I am just grateful that I can, I can, be together with somebody else who was listening to that crazy LP <laughs> and all the other Disneyland LPs. I wasn't the only one collecting them. No, but, so. and, and the, but the funny thing is there are an, any number of sound effects on that record that I don't even think are necessarily in the house because they have the Banshee sound from Darby O'Gill and the Little People and a couple of other related mm. sound effects they use that absolutely terrorized me as a kid. There's uh, the Banshee sound is used to, uh, when they're describing a ghost uh, rushing down a hallway, rattling chains. And as a kid, I'm, you know, un under the bed having a nervous breakdown. And that's not even in the, the attraction. But uh, yeah. the album looms large for sure. And, and, and totally, totally lived up to its name. But the other one that was the disappointment was Sounds of the Haunted House, 
which you thought was going to be a sound effect. It's going to be attached to the mansion. And it was just this recording of a lot of bunch of sounds from yeah. a haunted yeah. house, you know, but, but they were all the, the basis for anybody who would put on a spook alley, you know, as a it, kid, it was you know, definitely part of the stew, but at the same time, you're looking at that other album going, what, what was Jimmy McDonald cleaning out his junk drawer? <laughs> what was this? But then even that one had a, a, a little, a much shorter haunted house story that was narrated uh, by, by a woman, as I recall, and that scared me too. The woman's voice scared me because it was so ominous. And it's like, thank God there's nothing like that in this neighborhood. I would, we, I'd have to ask my parents to move. So um, so you've had the privilege and opportunity to be uh, among the Imagineers. This attraction, like Pirates, is just one of those, I don't know, cornerstone pieces by which everything else kind of gets compared to. Um, how, what were the stories? What were the, what were the references? How did, how did Imagineering see the Haunted Mansion um, even decades later? Well, that, that's an interesting question. And, it, and, and the answer is pretty complex for a couple of reasons. One, uh, as a lot of your listeners, I'm sure know, uh, Harper Goff did a sketch of a very much Charles Adams inspired house on a hill. Yes. You know, looming over a church. And, and today you think you can't. On the end of Main Street. Today you can't picture Disney building a church. There'd be rioting in the street, <laughs> protest letters and all that. But back then it was part of small town America. And there was, um, it was very much in the vein of the Adams family mansion on the hill. There were bats circling. And what that tells us is that Walt was interested in some kind of haunted experience uh, two years before Disneyland even opened. Uh, and then there was a period of time where it was going to be a part of Frontierland. And it even appeared, you know, on a fun map uh, for, for a period of time, I think as early as 58. Um, I may have some of the dates wrong. It's so funny because people are like, well, don't you remember? And then I use that line from... Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I'm like, I wrote it down in my book, so I wouldn't have to remember. <laughs> um, so again, there was a period of time where it was looked at as, as a frontier land fixture and then ultimately migrated a little bit to what would become New Orleans Square. Uh, but throughout the, you know, from that first sketch in 53 to the late 50s when Ken Anderson, starting in around yes. 58, I believe, uh, came up with treatment after treatment of what it could be. Uh, Yale Gracie and Rolly Crump, as early as the late 50s, were going all over the place, researching Chester Mystery House, you know, all kinds of attractions of that nature. Uh, and then uh, it was one of those things that, that got shunted aside a little bit because of the World's Fair, which was very much an all-hands-on-deck kind of situation, uh, and, and pivotal in another way, in that much like Pirates, the World's Fair experience was what motivated Walt to say, okay, forget it, we're not doing the, the walkthrough experience, this is going to be a ride-through, and we're going to use the same general system that was come up for, for the Ford vehicles. For the mm -hmm. Ford vehicles, uh, and then they took the clamshell vehicles from what would become Adventure, uh, Adventures through Inner Space. Inner Space. And you got your doom buggy. Uh, and also, uh, it, it wasn't just a Walt decision. You know, uh, Dick Nunes has gone on record saying, not Capacity. only. Capacity. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, not only based on their experience at the fair from an operational perspective, but just the first almost 10 years at Disneyland, they they were horrified by the idea of adding two more walking experiences. And that's where you got your doom buggy for the Haunted Mansion. And that's where you got your bateau, you know, for uh, for Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates. You know, it's funny, this morning I just was doing a little bit of research and came across a pocket guide, an old, old, old pocket guide for Disneyland cast members. And on it, surprisingly, it listed the date in which they reached the greatest capacity. I don't know what year the pocket guide was, probably somewhere in the 70s. But it was that summer of 69 in August. It was like August 13th. It was like 85,000 plus people. And that's without a Splash Mountain or a Space Mountain or, you know, so many other, you know, Toontown, a Galaxy's Edge, you know, all of that. I, I can I can barely imagine what a day of 65,000 must have been like. Um, well, back yeah, then. especially yeah. back then. And it's like today we routinely talk about something breaking the Internet. Well, the Haunted Mansion broke Disneyland, <laughs> at least from a capacity perspective. And uh, I know a lot of people, including Don Hahn, the producer of the movie, would argue that part of the reason for that was the intense anticipation that had been building for years because they finished the house in 63 and then the wrought iron gate was up marty sklar's sign was up advertising for for ghosts to come uh, live out or after live out their uh, retirement years yeah uh, more than one people uh, more than one person i've talked to said as a kid in Southern California, that was just absolutely brutal. You know, it's like going up to the Wonka factory with the gates shut and locked. But Gene <laughs> no Wilder doesn't no come out that. to open them <laughs> until 69. And then finally all that pent-up demand was satisfied. I think one of the great lessons that I take out of the development of the Haunted Mansion, I mean, in, in a sense, like you were just describing earlier, with Harper Goff and then Ken, and then eventually after after uh, Pirates and New Tomorrowland comes, there's almost this this gap before they know exactly what they need to design and work on for for Walt Disney World, and so everybody's kind of suddenly thrown into this project for the Haunted Mansion, kind of coming and going, and of course there's there's really two forces du jour on it. You've got Claude Coates, you've got Mark Davis, yeah. and somewhere in the middle you got Raleigh Crump, <laughs> kind of playing <laughs> jester <laughs> to the, to the two. Can describe what what that dynamic was like. Um, well, you you have to, first of all you you have and it, it it's hard with no frame of reference other than people telling you stories, but you just have to be able to picture the absolute chaos that had to have enveloped Disney. And honestly, uh, a couple of the most emotional moments of my Disney life uh, took place when I was sitting with Exitensio, Harriet Burns, Alice Davis, Blaine Gibson, because when they tell the story of that, and we're talking decades later, they still get emotional, they still tear up. Frankly, they still talk about Walt in the present tense. And two things have always touched me. That and when people like Annette Funicello and Kurt Russell to this day, Julie Andrews as well, uh, often will Big refer to him as Mr. Disney, you know, yeah. and it's, uh, but you can just imagine uh, the chaos. 
Pirates was a little bit less affected because it was essentially done, you know? Yeah, you just uh, add water. Yeah, and they, they were working through some issues, I think, I think mostly operational. And one of Walt's final instructions was, don't tell them you can have it ready for Christmas if you can't. You know, tell them to postpone, which is why it waited to early 67. But Haunted Mansion wasn't nearly that far along. Now, that said... I, I would argue, even though um, uh, the, the popular line on Pirates of the Caribbean, it, it's, it's always uh, copyrighted at this point, the last attraction personally supervised by Walt Disney. And that's very much true. But what people don't talk about enough, in my opinion, is just how much Walt Disney there is in the Haunted Mansion. And the proof lies in the 10th anniversary show and some of those other episodes where he's taking the ambassador around but there are the stretch portraits. There are other elements already that, in play. Were, that were absolutely going to be in the mansion. But what happened, as you referenced, was the, the great debate that sprung up between you know, factions that were headed by Mark Davis and Claude Coates. Mark was on the side that said, look, it's called the Haunted Mansion. People are already going to be on edge. They're already going to be scared. We don't want to tip them over the edge, so we need to lighten it up and make it funnier. You and can then, only scare them so many times. Yeah, absolutely. And then Claude, on the other hand, was saying, well, yeah, it's called the Haunted Mansion. That creates expectation. So if people don't come, if people aren't scared, they, they might be dissatisfied. And that tug of war just a year earlier would have been settled by Walt Disney because Amongst many other things, Walt was, uh, I, I think, to put it kindly, decisive. You know? So he would have said, here's what we're doing, boys. And that's, you know, th that's the end of the discussion. Um, you didn't have that. And I think Dick Irvine, who was the head of, w uh, of WED at the time, uh -huh. allowed that tension to play itself out, which ultimately turned out to be an absolute masterstroke because that tension between the fright and the funny, I think wound up making the haunted and as timeless. Timeless. As That's exactly the word I was thinking of. Is that timeless Absolutely. appeal to it? And, By the and, way, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, all I was going to say is I, I believe I first heard this from Tony Baxter, so I, I want to give proper credit. But as you ride the ride you basically uh, are riding from Claude Coates's imagination progressively more into Marx uh, because the beginning of the ride, uh, right up until about Seance Circle, is very much about atmosphere. It's a lot more ominous. You don't see any ghosts other than the, the hands that are coming out of the, the coffin. But then starting with uh, the, um, I'm sorry, the, um, the birthday party on, you progressively get deeper into Mark Davis territory with uh, very cartoonish characters. And then by the time you're in the graveyard, sight gags and classic Mark Davis material. Uh, and at the same time, by that point, you're surrounded by the ghosts and sort of part of that world. So I would argue, as would a lot of people, that it gets progressively less scary and funnier as you go along. But that continuum, that evolution is what makes the mansion. So to that effect, in your book, on uh, page 52, you have the images of their tombstones, Brother Claude's and, and Matt, 
Uh, well, actually, this is Master Gracie. I'm sorry. Um, but what I was going to say is in the 2002 interactive queue that was established for Walt Disney World, I find it curious that, and I, I don't know if you knew if this was intentional or, or if you had any involvement at all with it, but other than a Madame Leota's tomb, which is the very last thing you see before you go into the mansion, the tombstones begin and end with Claude and Mark. It starts with Mark at the very beginning of that interactive queue and ends at the very end before you get to Madame Leota with Claude Coates. And I just wondered if somebody had thought, we better space these people as far apart as possible <laughs> in the graveyard. We don't want them feuding even in the afterlife. I mean, to be honest, you, uh, honest with you, that's the first I've heard of that. And I find that both fascinating and poetically just. Just, um, yeah. I got to work on the Leota tombstone, which, you know, the things that, that I've done in my career, you know, I, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be the creative director in charge of entire parks. And yet to this day, I would argue that I am uh, as, as proud of that Leota epitaph as I am anything else I've done by virtue of what it means. Just for a little kid from Cleveland knowing that an epitaph that I wrote is sitting alongside epitaphs that came from Exitensio means the absolute world to me. The only other reason I wouldn't commit to the Mark Claude thing is simply knowing that over time, and I even have a problem with this because it almost seems sacrilegious, but uh, the tombstones have been moved at, uh, at Disney, oh, yes. especially at various times. So it, that, it would be hard to confirm if that was the intent, but Man, that's a great story. That's the kind of thing Tony Baxter would hear it and said, sounds true to me. So let's go with that. <laughs> well, we'll get to Tony in a moment. But yeah. uh, but um, and and I have to say, you should you should take pride in that and the uh, Madame Leota tombstone because it's always so much fun. Well, they, there's there's the good and the bad of that tombstone. The good is you see so many people who are just frozen staring at that thing i swear it moved you know and they're just waiting to see if it moves again you know and the time so that's the good news the bad news is you are you have totally interrupted the flow yeah, <laughs> and then i've also seen people get into arguments to the point where where you know i i actually heard a, a dad say you need to stop lying and i'm like oh my gosh we're gonna have like a, a, an incident you know here but, I think even one time I stepped in, I said, sir, sir, the eyes did move. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's also uh, those subtle design embellishments oh, that yeah. the Disney parks, what they are. But for me, the, the thrill was, uh, and again, I, I'm sure it was just an oversight or they just ran out of space, but to be able to give Leota her rightful place in the family plot, family in every Absolutely. sense of the word, uh, meant the world. And then in 2011, uh, uh, Pete Carcillo, who was the creative director of that enhancement, uh, he took it even further and, and, and made sure that anybody who was anybody in the creation of the Haunted Mansion got represented. So Jason, uh, tell me, let's talk about a couple of key individuals. And what I loved about your book is uh, you really went into focus about Ken Anderson's role uh, very early on in the whole process. Tell me, tell me what are some some things that you really gleaned from that? 
Well, for me, I think one of the great pleasures of, of doing all of my books was uh, the discovery of, of what I just came to refer to as unsung heroes of these various attractions. And uh, it quickly became apparent to me that Ken Anderson is the absolutely the unsung hero of The Haunted Mansion. Now, that may not be the case now, almost 20 years later, but when I started doing my research... Uh, I quickly realized, you know, because everyone knows Mark Davis and, and Exitensio and Claude Coates you know, in Disney circles. Um, I think I even have a section in the book where I labeled them the three Mouseketeers, you know, of, of the Haunted Mansion. But Ken Anderson started working on the mansion around in around 1957, and he generated concept after concept, storyline after storyline for the Haunted Mansion when it was a walkthrough experience, as well as generating you know, countless sketches for the attraction. Uh, and of course, he is the one who is responsible, directly responsible for the look of the Haunted Mansion uh, at Disneyland. Uh, he was very much inspired by um, a, a plantation house in Maryland. Uh, and, um, but as I was doing my research, I just realized that he had as much to contribute to the Haunted Mansion as anybody, as any Imagineer I, I had thought about or known about at the time. And it was really a pleasure to start reading through his various storylines. He's the one that introduced the the sea captain with the, the bride and the ill-fated fate of the bride um, and contribute any number of elements that survived, you know, through the, the mansion's various iterations till it finally opened in 1969. Um, and, and not to go down a rabbit hole on this, um, <laughs> I love so much his design for Disneyland's mansion. It is the quintessential uh, it, it, architectural centerpiece, I believe, of New Orleans Square at Disneyland. When Walt Disney World was great, and I, I went to look for this in your book, and I also went to look for it in Mark Davis's, I had gotten the impression over the year, maybe you can correct me, and maybe you're not certain yourself, um, the architectural design for the Magic Kingdom version seems to have a look that suggests chess pieces as part of the facade, <laughs> which plays so much into Mark Davis's own love of chess and, of course, the famous story of the skeletons playing chess um, uh, are locked into a eternal checkmate, I guess. Right. Um, in Pirates of the Caribbean. Can you offer some insight around that? Or what, what's your understanding around that? It, it's funny because uh, I, I told many people that one of the main motivations for writing the Haunted Mansion book originally, in addition to wanting to read it, was to sort of dispel a lot of the myths uh, and uh, urban legends that had grown up around the Haunted Mansion and as far as I know, as far as any of us uh, at Disney were aware, uh, those are not chess pieces. They are just uh, architectural ornamentation that was typical of the time and the region, and they very much look like chess pieces. Now, I first heard that from an Imagineer named Gary Landrum, who is a longtime Imagineer uh, here in Florida, who was uh, for the longest time responsible for the show awareness program, which is a program in which Imagineering develops all of these amazing training materials for the park cast that details the design, the storyline, the backstory. Often they're the tools that keep these details alive. 
Absolutely. And he was the first person uh, early on in my career at Disney who said very emphatically, those are not chess pieces, <laughs> almost defensively, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because he's so into the lore and knows all these things. <laughs> and then when I did my own research, it seemed to support that. So I would classify that along with the bride's wedding ring that's supposedly embedded in the pavement <laughs> at, the, at the Liberty Square house. Uh, as as just something that grew up uh, around the mansion in, in terms of urban legend, but is not true. It, it is simply architectural ornamentation typical of the style and period. Exaggerated, which also probably helps create that illusion. Because illusion. Claude Coates uh, absolutely played with scale, uh, particularly with the Florida mansion, because he consciously wanted to create the image of a looming creature. So if you look at the, that sort of central core of the Haunted Mansion with the wings coming off to either side, it really does look like a creature wrapping its arms out around you, around yeah. you as though it's about to envelop you. Yeah, plus the fact that it sits on a hill, you know, it's yes. kind of... Um... And that, honestly, and you know, a lot of people talk about this too, that was very much by design because even in the short time between the opening of the mansion at Disneyland and Walt Disney World, people were, all, well, not everyone, but certain people were already getting scared. And uh, which goes right back to that Mark Davis, Claude Coates debate. But part of it had to do with, you know, you can just imagine somebody sort of comically storming into guest relations. But I went into this nice, beautiful Southern house and, and, and I had the daylight scared out of me. <laughs> so, for Walt Disney World, um, even though they they continued to adhere to Walt's, you know, we'll take care of the outside, let the ghosts take care of the inside, they at least wanted to visually convey a little bit more menace. So again, now you've got the bat weather vane. As opposed yes. To it, those kind of adjustments. But early on, and in the original days of Walt Disney World, see, we've gotten down a rabbit hole, but this is a good rabbit hole. Um, early on, they had very beautiful gardens laid out in front of the Haunted Mansion. It was as pristine as Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. It's only been in the last 20 years that they have kind of moved toward a um, weathered weeds kind of look in the, in the, uh, in the landscaping package. And, and I wouldn't put it past them to make a budget cut there, but, but it does... <laughs> It does emphasize as well to a much more international audience that comes to the Haunted Mansion that this isn't this isn't an architectural tour we're on any more than Space Mountain is a convention center. So. <laughs> right. Although I did learn how to do my taxes at Space Mountain once. It was very nice. There was a, a lovely chicken lunch. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. No, you're right. And that was also a conscious decision because what, what's happened, I think, in the decades, you know, five of them now, uh, over five since Walt's passing, is uh, collectively as an industry, we've recognized that something can appear to be run down and at the exact same time be beautiful. Look, look no further than Phantom Manor uh, at, at Disneyland Paris. So I think that would account for some of those... Uh, degradations in the pristine quality of the Florida house. Uh, and I, I think it works. Um, in fact, I would argue you could take it further. I, but here's the thing. It's like, I wouldn't want to enter the grounds of the Disneyland mansion and see, you know, yellow grass or weeds or, or, or take it too, too far. 
um, simply because it, that stage picture now is so well established. You know, I, I don't think you could you could take that too far. With Walt Disney World, I think they've had they've hit just the right balance of sort of uh, sort of carefully managed neglect. <laughs> That's uh, well, a great phrase for it. Uh, yeah, but uh, you don't question it, and um, it, it, they absolutely knocked it out of the park in terms of creating that more ominous setup. Because to this day, when you walk at Disney, it's like, I, I'm, I'm sure you're the same. When I'm walking up that walkway, I can't take my eyes off the house because it's beautiful. You know, so I, I don't think you would want to mess around with that too much simply because it works so well. But we live in a, in a world now in, the, in the, the world of themed entertainment design where, I mean, look at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. They perfectly replicated the used universe of George Lucas, where there's rust and decay and corrosion and, and, and you know, <laughs> junkyards, basically. Um, and you wouldn't have it any other way, you know, so that that's simply where we are now. But in, in Walt's time, you know, he, uh, and I think that has directly, that uh, is directly derived from his desire to not have a junky amusement pier, carnival amusement park type atmosphere that's sure. absolutely what drove that philosophy but we're so many decades beyond that now that i think walt himself would would approach uh different environments uh in, in a completely different way yeah I, I totally agree you um one of the key players of the honda mansion is exitensio and you had a unique opportunity to work and collaborate with him share share with us your experience well, one of the main reasons I wrote the book, and I, or the, all of my books, and I didn't know it for the first one because I'd never done one before, but uh, it, it came to be that one of the main reasons to do the book was the unique opportunity, as you say, to spend time with Disney legends that I absolutely would not have had otherwise. I'm third generation Imagineer, and now that I'm not there, I've invented my own Disney word. I'm an Imagineeritist. <laughs> I've taken Imagineer. <laughs> And emeritus and kind of put them together. And I'm, I'm sure I'm sure we could get you some souvenirs to go. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Um, but you know, second generation like uh, uh, Mike West, who's the uh, longtime Imagineer who hired me, discovered me, trained me. He got to go to you know he started in 1980 and got to go to work every day uh, on Epcot with all of the original people. So. Rolly Crump's in the office. Exitensio's in the office. Herb Ryman is still around. I think Mark Davis had retired in maybe 78. I don't really remember. But even he would come around. You know, John Hench was still extremely active day-to-day -day on Epcot, Marty. Um, so he got to uh, absorb all of that Disney knowledge directly from the masters as a second-generation Imagineer. So third-generation, we were beneficiaries of the oral tradition, you know, and the second generation passing things down to us, along with some of the Imagineers uh, still being around. Marty still ran the place, you know, when I was, for most of the time I was there. John Hench was still coming in um, every day, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in, into his 80s and 90s. But these books really afforded me the opportunity to sit at the feet of the masters with Exitensio, Harriet Burns, Alice Davis, Rolly Crump, Blaine Gibson, you know, the, the list goes on. And uh, I developed an especially close relationship with X because I'm a writer. He was a writer. <laughs> he didn't know it at the time until Walt told him he was a writer. Um, that was one of the 
his favorite stories was you know, how he was sitting at his desk at the studio and Walt just came by and he said, you're going to wet and you're going to like it. And you're going to be a right <laughs> pirate of the Caribbean. Um, and, and, and he's like, excuse me, I, I, I'm not a writer. I know nothing about pirates. But other than that, it sounds like an airtight plan. Um, but X was just uh, very gracious. Uh, he had me over to his home a number of times. I, I sat with him for hours conducting these interviews. And um, in particular, he gave me uh, the most touching and poignant account of Walt's passing and what that day was like in December of 1966. He just sat on his couch. He was staring off into space and had almost a wistful expression. And he got tears in his eyes, which, you know, and that happened with multiple people. Uh, most of them spoke of Walt as though he was still alive, which to me is a testament to, to Walt's status as kind of a force of nature. Um, but X, uh, in sitting with him and listening to his approach to Disney storytelling, specifically writing and story building, uh, that gave me a chance to sit with uh, the source, somebody handpicked by Walt to to be one of the first Imagineers. So that was, uh, it was and is priceless to me. You know, I got to take a picture in his backyard. He had his Haunted Mansion tombstone uh, as part of the landscaping right by the pool, <laughs> which is this really incongruous sight. But <laughs> uh, and I will never forget one of the greatest moments of my life uh, came after the Pirates of the Caribbean book came out. I had sent him a copy, and uh, I was driving home from work uh, here in Florida from Imagineering. I was on the I'll never forget. I was on the sweeping sort of curved entrance ramp onto I four when you should probably be paying attention to what you're doing. And my cell phone goes off and it says Exitensio. And that there alone, you've entered the twilight zone. You know? Yeah. It's like, you know, a 35 year old guy going, Oh my God, Exitensio. Like, yeah. So I picked up the phone and uh, in, in typical deferential fashion, I'm like, hello, sir. <laughs> you know? um, and he said, Jason, I just have to tell you, I got the Pirates book, and it's just wonderful. And once again, you've told all these wonderful stories, and I just feel like you've become uh, my, my personal publicist. And he kind of, <laughs> you wow. know, because again, back in the day, the there was one name above the door, still is, and, and rightfully so, but uh, they the, those guys didn't have the attention that they have now. So he was going on and on about that for a while, and then he paused, and, and I'll never forget what he said or the way he said it. He said, Jason, you're a good boy. And I'm a, I'm a 35-year-old man, and I literally, tears welled up in my eyes, and I almost drove into a lamppost. You know, so that was, uh, that was uh, one of the, the shining moments of my life, to get that kind of compliment from not only a, a Disney legend and a master Imagineer, but someone in the writing area of Imagineering, and, and and I felt like, okay, now just like Mike, you know, X is a mentor for me too, and, you know, it was it was just a privilege. You know, I, I love that, and I think it's a great end note to to not only hear your experience with X, but to, to think about how it, um, all, his work and everyone's work is a reflection of their experience with Walt Disney, the original Imagineer, and how this really was the major project, Pirates being almost completely done at the time of his death, 
this was their time to kind of say, okay, based on everything he's shared with us, everything we've gone down, how do we segue that into creating a completed attraction? One that has just, just it's just lasted for decades. It is such a great attraction. And, yeah, and, um, and okay. it's thrilled by so many. Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, for me, the, the mansion is pivotal uh, in a couple of ways. One, you mentioned pirates because everyone, and this has been promoted by the company, and rightfully so on a technical level, that Pirates of the Caribbean was, quote, the last attraction personally supervised by Walt Disney. And yes, that's true. Uh, other than the test and adjust period, uh, they were ready to go uh, to open it up and uh, Walt himself uh, gave the order to delay it uh, so they could work out some final kinks. But much like the unsung hero thing, what I discovered was that there is infinitely more of Walt Disney in the Haunted Mansion than anyone or, or certainly the average person is aware of because they were so far along in the design process. You know, there's footage on the Sunday night show of Walt taking and one of the ambassadors through WED, and Mark Davis is demonstrating the stretching portraits. And even though Rolly Crump's Museum of the Weird didn't make it into the final show, you can see models of some of his designs and his yeah. unique influence on the Haunted Mansion. So there is a lot of uh, Walt in the Haunted Mansion, and Walt was certainly aware of a great deal of the show. At the same time, because of his passing and when it took place in the, the life cycle of the Haunted Mansion, it really was the first, oh, wow, the training wheels are off, you know, kind of attraction for WED. And that's what famously led to the funny versus scary debate and the absence of the one person who would have single-handedly settled that debate and said, no, this is what we're doing. And then as a result of that, uh, because Dick Irvine, who was head of Imagineering at the time, kind of let that friction play out. That is what I think led to the Haunted Mansion being what it is. Little funny, little scary. It's the Donnie and Marie of Haunted <laughs> <laughs> A little well, bit in. It's a little bit rock and roll. You have really dated yourself on that comment, know, Jason. Exactly. And I've often stood is... myself up, which is odd. Uh, it went, that was a um, date. Self-joke, In fact, actually, I was... I mean, courtesy left. It's funny you mentioned um, we are way off on a rabbit hole now, Donnie Osmond. I saw I live photo. in a, a rabbit hole. I, oh, Donnie Osmond! No, I saw, I, saw the, I saw a photo that was taken of Donnie and his brothers, or or some of the brothers, and um, and um, Kurt. Um, Kurt Russell? EJ Kurt Peter. Russell kind of waiting around and they're and they're actually sitting on the tombstones um at Disneyland and I, I thought that was interesting because and it, it Mark Davis is one of those tombstones and I think X may have been one of the others but it was like three of the tombstones kind of sitting there and I thought how interesting that these these um tombstones honoring these imagineers were there from day one at the haunted mansion at Disneyland. Well, yeah, because they weren't intended to be memorials. They were intended right. <laughs> in the... <laughs> unless, unless X knew something that nobody else did. Uh, unless, yes, unless Reedy Creek has gotten right. a license to open a cemetery that we're X not X is sitting there in his typewriter saying, Mark's got a big surprise coming to him. 
Um, yeah, no, yeah. no, they, uh, that was just always intended to be in-jokes and references and kind of slyly paying homage to each other. And not even from an egotistical point of view, it's just, that's what you know, that's what you're going to put in. You know, because yeah. it, it wasn't like, those folks were so incredibly humble that there's no way they they did that as a tribute to themselves. It's just sly winking at each other, kind of like, well, I got to use, yeah. I have a name, you know, might as well do this. Because the, the humility is something that struck me again and again and again, because you you might expect at least one of them to be sitting there sort of throne-like, going, yes, approach, let me tell you how Disneyland was created. <laughs> But they yeah. were all, you know, because they were all members of the, the greatest generation, right? So they just had a completely different attitude about life and work and just incredibly humble. And uh, while on a certain level they recognize that the things they worked on have stood the test of time and have the impact they've had, uh, what came through to me was the humility, especially with somebody like Harriet Burns, one of the most delightful human beings I've ever met in my life. Um, she was just so matter of fact about everything. You're talking about the tiki room. Uh, she'd be like, oh, you know, Walt would just come in and say, we, we, we need a tiki bird. You know, so I would go down to the craft store and, you know, get material that, that, that looked like feathers because no one had ever done it before. And that was another refrain you heard again and again and again. You could almost see them shrugging their shoulders like no one had ever done that before. They just go and do it. And they, they just, just go and do it. Did it. Same thing with the Matterhorn. You know, uh, you, you get a postcard in the mail from Switzerland with a, a picture of the Matterhorn on it. And Walt writes, Build this. This. you know, they're like, all right, <laughs> I guess we're building a mountain in, in Anaheim. In the middle Jason, of the Jason, you have been amazing. Thank you so much. No, you're for welcome. Joining us on this podcast as we celebrate the Haunted Mansion uh, at this time of year. Um, please honor us with more stories and more experiences um, in future podcasts. If you could, we would yeah, love absolutely. to have your insights and, uh, and just do some more sharing. No, it's a pleasure because you hit on the right word uh, sharing. It, it's uh, the stories need to be shared uh, both inside and outside these companies, because honestly, and, and there's more books now than ever before on not only Disney, but the art of theme design, there's more, college courses and degrees than certainly existed even when I was younger. So uh, it's getting out there yeah, more and more and more, and it's sort of taking root in the world. But uh, the sharing is key because, like I said, there's a great oral tradition uh, in terms of how this lore, uh, how this expertise gets passed down. And uh, now it's interesting that there are generations behind me. You know, I'm not the... Uh, you know, the young kids sitting at the feet anymore. I'm one of the elder statesmen now going with statesmen going, well, here's, here's how we did it. Here's how they did it. You know, and could you please get me, you know, an, an Excedrin for my back? <laughs> <laughs> but that's where we are. The, the play goes on. Again, thank you so much, Jason. My pleasure. Talk to you soon, Jeff. Well, that's a wrap for this Disney at Play podcast. We again want to thank Jason Sorrell for joining us in this discussion about, well, this classic and favorite attraction, the Haunted Mansion. If you love our podcast, be sure to subscribe because we offer a variety of Disney podcast topics up to three times a week, so you don't want to miss any. 
And if you really like the things that we're sharing, do us a favor, head over to iTunes. Please offer a positive rating and, if possible, even a few kind words. We appreciate any help that you can give in bringing the themes and topics that we share about Disney to others. Again, thanks for joining us. And finally, in the words of Sinbad's Storybook Voyage, that's episode 37, when Alan Menken says, follow the compass of your heart, please be sure to do so. Have a great day. We'll see you real soon. <laughs>